All right, you guys. Good morning. We will get going here. We're going to talk about... So I, I, we touched on it last week. Uh, we talked about fasting a little bit last week. And this week we're going to go over more about that, but specifically regarding what the kind of attitude we're supposed to have specifically about food. So fasting... One of the reasons why it's so healthy is because it's very, very effective at exposing what your attitude is really like about food. But this applies to anything and everything. Anything that you or your body or your mind finds comfort or joy in, take it away for an extended period of time, and you'll find out what you really feel about it and how much you depend on it. So we know the Bible says that we're supposed to depend on God solely. For our life, uh, the Bible says, in him we live and move and have our being already. So we depend on him for our survival in that sense. But also, Matthew 4.4, 4, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy, which is in chapter 8 of Deuteronomy. And he says, God says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And if you look at the context of that, that verse in Deuteronomy, we are told that God gave manna in the wilderness to the Israelites and made them gather it every morning and did not allow them to gather extra. They were only allowed to gather enough for that, that day in the morning. If they tried to gather extra, whatever was left over would rot and it would be bad the next day. They would not be able to eat it. And so in that context, God says that he did this to test them, it says, so that they would know that you will not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In other words, the only reason why we're allowed to keep living and the only reason why we're allowed to be able to have food and drink to begin with is because God has decreed it by his word. He's our provider. So the point of that is we need to see and understand that we live by God's word and not by food. So the point of this is how do we put into practice every day this dependence on the word of God and not dependence on food? So that's what we're going to talk about. And it begins with your attitude, how you think about it, how you think about food, how you see it, what you feel about it. So the first thing we have to establish is... What is food for? And there's really two main things. And just so you guys can throw out some guesses, what do you think food is for? Why did God make food? Enjoyment? Yeah? There's a few verses that talk about that. One, Ecclesiastes, if you want to know about that side of the story, Ecclesiastes has a few verses that talks about how food is something that God wants us to enjoy. So yes, that's true. So that's one thing. What's the second thing? Nourishment? Yep. And one verse, so you can look at, um, just so you have some references to write down. So for the enjoyment piece, Ecclesiastes 9, verse 7 is one of them. That's just one. There's several in Ecclesiastes. But Ecclesiastes 9, verse 7 says that God wants us to enjoy our food. Then for nourishment, a really good one is Psalms 104, verse 15. So chapter 104 of Psalms and verse 15 says that God gives bread to strengthen man's heart. And so that's just one example. Some uh, scholars who've studied this verse actually specifically about bread, the way that it was made uh, at the time this was written, that it had specific health benefits for your cardiovascular system. So this verse is just one example that teaches that God wants us to have food to strengthen our bodies. It's, you could say, fuel for our bodies. So you guys have guessed or estimated correctly. It's absolutely true that God wants us to enjoy our food and he wants it to nourish our bodies. Now, here's the thing. As soon as God gives us permission to enjoy something, it becomes very easy for it to turn into either gluttony or dependence or uh, an idolizing of that thing that we're called to enjoy. We're also told to receive food with thanksgiving. And so there's a sense in which the enjoyment comes from 
thankfulness. And in fact, anybody, whether from scripture or experience, you can know that the more thankful you are for something, the more you're going to enjoy it. That's the general principle there. One proverb that's really good to look at to just start us off here is chapter 27 of Proverbs in verse 7. So that's where we will go next. Proverbs 27 in verse 7. Proverbs 27, verse 7. It says, A satisfied soul loathes the honeycomb, but to a hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. Basically, this is trying to say that when you are full, it makes even the best of food not enough. And it doesn't really satisfy. But when you're hungry, it makes everything taste good. <laughs> if you're hungry enough. Um, I have some experience with this of going to the Boundary Waters a, a few times. We used to go every year um, when I was a kid. And I remember when you, when you, when you run out of food, on the last day of the trip, and you're, you're working all day every day just to be able to keep your camp running. And I remember specifically that eating just straight dry rolled oats was so good. And I was so convinced at this last day of this particular Banjo Waters trip where I went, I was, I was so convinced that this is the best snack, this is the best thing, I'm gonna eat this every day when I get home. Then like two days in, coming home after, now my tummy's full and I'm cleaned up and everything. I tried it. I'm going to have just dry oats for breakfast. It was the worst thing. <laughs> it, was, it was not good. And it shocked me because I was like, how is it possible that while I'm really hungry on this trip, this is like the best thing to eat. And then when I'm home and I'm full and I'm satisfied, it's not good anymore. And this is what happens. The point is that if you stay dependent on food and you feed the flesh to the point where you always want to be full. You always want to give the flesh what it wants. It starts to make even the best of what God has given unsatisfying. And you won't find any contentment in it. You won't find any real joy in it. Because all you're doing is feeding the flesh. There's another verse in Proverbs that says that as hell and destruction are never full, so the eyes of man are never satisfied. So in other words, if you live just for what the human carnal eye craves and lusts for, you'll n you're never ultimately going to be satisfied. And so that's why it says the full or satisfied soul in terms of being, being full, the flesh being full, loathes the honeycomb. But to a hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. So if you apply that second half of the proverb, the point is that God wants us to be hungry in the sense that we're always dependent on him for our joy. And as we talked about last week, when you're dependent on him, there's going to be some disciplines of strenuous exercise, fasting, things like that. It keeps your body under, is what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 9, he talks about that we're to discipline our bodies, bring our bodies into subjection. You're supposed to keep the flesh under the spirit, which means you don't always give the flesh what it wants. And that keeps your flesh hungry. And when you're hungry, it makes what you do allow yourself to enjoy that much sweeter. So biblically speaking, the only way to properly enjoy food and to fulfill that command in scripture is not to enjoy whatever you want, whenever you want. Otherwise, that's just feeding the flesh. The point is to keep your body under, keep it in subjection, and keep yourself hungry enough that you're dependent more on God than you are on food. Then what happens is what you do get to eat, you're that much more thankful for it, and that's what makes it sweeter. That's what makes it better. So the only way biblically that you can actually enjoy your food is if you don't allow yourself to eat whatever you want, whenever you want. Otherwise, it just makes it worse. Then the joy becomes idolizing. So that's the first thing. 
about enjoying your food. And then we've got nourishing the body. We've gone over that. Food is meant to be fuel for your living, for your life. But then we have this really interesting concept that Jesus models in John chapter 4. So that's where we should go next. John chapter 4. Jesus was the best at this because he's the best at everything. And so we'll start in verse 31 of John chapter 4. It says, in the meantime, Jesus' disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat, of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? In other words, they're thinking somebody else gave him food, literal food. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So I'll pause there for a moment. So this is where things get interesting because, again, let's go back to the purpose of food. Nourish your body and enjoy it. So if you replace the word food in this verse with nourishment and enjoyment, here's how it reads. My nourishment and enjoyment is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So, and there's plenty of times where Jesus is really hungry in his life physically. He did a 40-day fast at the beginning of his ministry, resisted every temptation from the devil. And then there are times like this one where he would not eat and the disciples think, man, this guy's got to be hungry. And he says, no, I already have food. Now, when you think about a time where, where you're fasting, typically we think of food literally as in, oh, I'm hungry. I don't have food. I don't have something that I can literally feed my body with. Jesus didn't think of it that way. Jesus didn't see food as something that he, or he, excuse me, he didn't see food as something that was just or merely literal food. He actually saw his food as doing the work of the Father. So the issue is that although, yes, we have to define what you eat as you know, with the term food, Jesus is trying to teach here that your enjoyment and nourishment, your literal food is meant to be doing his work. Doing the will of the Father is the first thing. The second thing is to finish his work. So we know that God has you in his will and he's using you for his will already. So this is simply just a term representing simply living as a child of God, that's the first thing, simply existing at all. And the second thing has to do with finishing his work, which means you have tasks to accomplish. You have things to do for his kingdom. So if you want to be able to be joyful and fulfilled and satisfied, he says you have to be knowing and enjoying the fact that you're in the will of the Father and number two, that you're finishing his work. You're, you're accomplishing things for his kingdom. And that's what Jesus said his, his food was. Now, just to switch gears a little bit, uh, to speak from some experience, I'm getting close to finishing up a fast right now, and I, ha I had this uh, experience the past probably two or three days where I hit a, I wouldn't call it a breaking point, but it was a roadblock, essentially, where I got to a point where I was really hungry and very tired, very f fatigued. And then I was praying and I knew and the Holy Spirit basically showed me that once I get into a habit or as a result of getting into a habit of fasting, you have to really make sure you're eating healthy. This is just another practical point. If you want to make a lifestyle out of fasting, you have to make sure your meals are healthy because otherwise on the days that you uh, do eat, if you eat junk and then fast, your body's not going to have a lot of long-lasting energy or nourishment to keep you 
healthy on the days you're not eating. So uh, God showed me that I needed to basically rework my uh, eating schedule and planning. So I, I had spent this day, the day before I had hit this roadblock, I spent all this time planning out everything I was going to eat for the next, I, I believe it was one month at a time on this, on this rotation. So then we had to go grocery shopping. So we went to Costco, got a bunch of stuff to put in the freezer. So I spent this all this time thinking about food, what I'm going to eat when I finish the fast, going to the grocery store. Then uh, I go to bed that night, and I couldn't fall asleep because of how much I was thinking about food. <laughs> then a couple days before that, I was dreaming about food. It was ridiculous, you guys. It, it, like I had this, it felt like a nightmare, even though it wasn't. I, I, so in the middle of this fast, I have a dream that I was at somebody's house, and one of my favorite treats is berries and whipped cream. So I, was, I had this dream, and I was eating berries and whipped cream in my dream, and then I realized I, I violated my fast, and I woke up like, no, no, I broke my fast. So it, was, it freaked me out like I thought it was real. Um, so, then, so I'm dreaming about food. I'm thinking about food. can't go to sleep because of how much I'm thinking about food. So the next day, I hit this roadblock where I'm like, okay, this is ridiculous. Like I spent all this time thinking about food, and now I'm so tired and so fatigued. And... It convicted me because I found myself thinking about food more than I was about God. And never, if you had asked me before starting this fast, and this is a long-term one, this is probably the, probably the first like, really serious fast I've done in my life. And if you had asked me before this that whether I, I don't know, idolized food or made food more important than God, I would have said, no way. No way do I make food more important than God. I, I'm not a glutton, not this, not that, whatever. I would have denied that until I actually did it, <laughs> until I actually took away food. Then I realized food was distracting me from God. I was planning more about eating than I was about planning work for the kingdom on this particular day. I was dreaming about food when normally I would dream about doing work for the kingdom. And I realized that I've made, a f made food an idol. And I'd always been pretty good at controlling how much I ate and not overeating and that kind of thing. I've always been good at that. But I was put, making food more important than I should have been. Really convicted me. So that was kind of this, this heavier day that I was really tired and fatigued. So then I went and prayed about it, studied it, and this is when God led me to this verse in John chapter 4 and taught me that my, my actual food can't be physical food. I need to see my food as him, his word, and doing his work for the kingdom. That's what my food needs to be. And when I really thought about it, I went, do I think like Jesus thought? Do I, do I really believe that my enjoyment, nourishment, and satisfaction comes from solely God and his work and not from physical food. And because of this fast, I realized I could not answer that question, yes. And so then moving forward, I went, okay, so what's the goal then? What's the goal of fasting? Why do this? What's the point? The point is you discipline your body to the point where to you, there is no difference in your joy and satisfaction between whether you eat or don't eat. No difference. That's the goal. Fasting, other than building your own self-control and patience, is about you putting into practice what Jesus is teaching here and what he's modeling, where you actually begin to see your food as doing his work and as being in his word. Then once you've arrived at that place, now just as Proverbs 27, 7 says, that's when you really are actually able to enjoy your food in a biblical way because now you're thankful for it, but you're not idolizing it or overemphasizing it. And because you stay hungry, you, you keep your flesh disciplined, it makes what you eat sweeter. Otherwise, you always want more, whatever it is. And these, this same discipline is not just applied to food, it's for anything else in your life. And so whether it's, uh, you know, a certain beverage or habit or a hobby, anything you can think of that you simply want or have in life. I guarantee you, 
<laughs> just because of, of living this, that it's similar to uh, 1 Corinthians 10, I believe in verse 12. It says, let him who stands take heed lest he fall. Then you've got 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1. Um, or my, it's between verses 1 through 4, 1 Corinthians 8, that says, If anyone thinks he knows anything, he actually knows nothing, yet as he ought to know. In other words, put those two verses together. This is the point I was getting at. As soon as you think you're good in an area, as soon as you think you know something, as soon as you think you're strong in something, that probably means you're not. <laughs> so the point is, if just like I was, I was confident about food till I took it away. So if you think, oh, no, I don't, I don't, that's not an idol in my life. I can enjoy that. That's, that's not a big deal. Try taking it away for a while. That's the challenge. See what happens. Now, if you can go through that long-term time where you take that thing away, whatever it is, and you're able to make it through, nothing about your attitude changes, nothing about your joy changes, nothing about your satisfaction changes, then yes, you're good in that area. If that's not the case, you are not good in that area. And all of us got to go through this. Why? Because Jesus said, quoting from Deuteronomy, we're supposed to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Where your, your life itself, your joy and satisfaction has to come solely from Him. The only way to accomplish that is the process of putting your flesh under. And so you have to put the flesh under in every area that the flesh is comforted. So that can be with drink, it can be with food, it can be with... Uh, whether it's a lack of exercise, indolence, for example, it can be relaxation. Uh, sometimes it can even come down to your work, your career. You can idolize that too much, too. It can be movies, entertainment, hobbies, whatever it might be. The only way to finish out this process of accomplishing discipline in the area of putting your flesh under is to one by one go through every area of your life and take it away for a time. Only way. And if you do this, the point, and we went over this a little bit last week, is that what happens is that when your body is under like this, it allows you a self-control and patience that produces faith. One of the primary reasons why Jesus was able to do what he did and able to go through the hardships that he went through was because of his self-control. He was able to endure his suffering as a sheep led to the slaughter, silent, because of his self-control. I was just reading about this the other day when you have Jesus being, whether it's scourged or insulted, reviled, blindfolded, and then beaten while the soldiers are yelling at him to prophesy to them about who struck him while he's blindfolded, mocking him in all these different ways. He's the king of the universe. If there's anybody who had a right to talk back, it was probably Jesus. But he was completely silent, didn't say a word. Do you think that took some self-control? Absolutely. So he had self-control in what he said, what he did. Think about his power. Jesus said that he had the authority and power to call on legions of angels while he's being arrested, while he's being crucified. So not only, I'll put it this way. You got a person who's helpless being crucified. There's not much they can do about it. But Jesus had absolute power to deliver himself from that suffering. But he had to choose not to. Do you think that took self-control? Yeah. Absolutely. You have power to save yourself from something. And you choose not to. That takes self-control. So in his suffering, he had self-control. In his words, he had self-control. In even when it comes to just his daily schedule of being selfless and serving others rather than himself being served, that took self-control. Everything that Jesus did took self-control. And the only reason he was able to do that is because he had kept his flesh under. He had kept the body under. He kept his body disciplined. Because everything that the flesh wants to do, every impulse of the flesh being acted upon always comes from a lack of self-control. So if you want to be able to do what Jesus did, go through what he went through and keep your joy, self-control, and therefore self-discipline is necessary. So it's up to you guys to think about how you want to go about this. It might be food, might be something else. 
um, whatever it is, put this into practice. But I can certainly recommend to you, just as I kind of touched on last week, that fasting from food specifically, because it's the one of the things that we most uh, routinely feed upon, fasting from food also it will help you in all other areas, especially if, for example, you, I don't know, let's say want to break a habit of prioritizing entertainment too much. You can fast from food and then pray for God to help you in that other area, to give you self-control in that other area. For me, this is something that the Holy Spirit also had me do. I had actually started uh, making even work of the kingdom a little bit too important in the sense that I was turning it into, I have to be doing something for God, specifically uh, evangelism, like meetings for pe- uh, with people and uh, discipleship and things like that. I turned that into like, I have to be doing this, otherwise my day doesn't go well. It was like, I have to have been doing something like that. And so I actually took a day during this fast, happened to be the same day where I was also very fatigued, where I didn't do any of that. So I didn't do any evangelism, no meetings, nothing. And so I just hung out with family that day and we did errands and things like that. And it was rough because not only am I not eating food, now I'm also taking away the thing that I started to depend too much on. And I wasn't able simply to enjoy just being a child of God and being in his presence and being loved and part of his kingdom because I thought I always had to be doing something. And that was a problem. And I realized that too. That was another lesson that I learned. And so sometimes even good things, even really, really good things, you have to deny yourself of for a time because anything has the potential to become overemphasized or idolized if you don't maintain this pattern and exercise of that that self-denial. So again, think about these things. If whatever's on your mind first is probably what you should do first or what you should fast from first. Just to give you guys some more examples about what Jesus taught about depending on his word for nourishment and joy. You can go to 1 Peter 2, verse 2. If you want to turn there, you can. I'm not going to. But 1 Peter 2, verse 2 says to desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Desire the pure milk of the word. So That's what you're supposed to want. That's what you're supposed to desire. What do you guys think is more important, your physical growth or your spiritual growth? Spiritual growth. So when it comes to food... If you think about it this way, when you're fasting, it contributes to you growing spiritually. When you're not fasting and you're eating, it contributes to your physical health. If you fast, you're not going to undo your physical health. It's actually healthy for you to fast physically. So when you think about it that way, Either way, whether you're eating or not, you're still growing, you're still benefiting yourself. So we should be able to have joy in the fact that we're growing and progressing spiritually when we fast. So if you start to complain and get a bad attitude when you're fasting, that means spiritual growth isn't all that important to you. Because if it were, you would rejoice in that while you're fasting. You guys see that? Does that make sense? If you fast and you have a bad attitude and you want food really bad, that just tells you that to you, the physical is more important than the, than the spiritual. So it's just something to keep in mind. We're told that our desire is supposed to be for the milk of the word because that's how we grow spiritually. And you can rejoice in that when you're depriving the flesh. That's an important piece there. So now let's actually turn to John 6. John 6. We'll start in verse 22. This is right after Jesus feeds the 5,000. He sends a crowd away and he departs. 
John 6, verse 22 says, On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except that one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias, near the place where they, where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So they're trying really hard to find Jesus. Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? They didn't realize he walked on the water, that whole thing. That's how he got there. Um, verse 26, Jesus answered and said to them, he sees their motives. This is really key. Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Okay, let's go back to the beginning of verse 26. You seek me, not because you saw the signs. In other words, you're not seeking me because you saw what you needed to to know that I'm the Christ or the Messiah. You're following me around simply because you ate the loaves and were filled. In other words, I, I, I gave you a full tummy. That's why you're looking for me. What's interesting about this is that Jesus knows this. Probably before he even fed the 5,000. And yet he still feeds them. There's a verse in uh, Acts, it's either 13 or 14, where God says that he has never left us without witness by giving us food and rain in due season. No matter the nation you're from, believer or unbeliever, God sends his rain on the just and the unjust. God has always allowed us access to food in some way, shape, or form. So he's always going to Make sure you're taken care of. So that means it's up to you, the attitude, the kind of attitude that you have about food and what you do with it. And so we got to ask ourselves, what kind of food am I laboring for? Because he says, there's a lot of people, this crowd as representatives, who are seeking him simply for a full tummy. This doesn't necessarily mean physical food. Something that gratifies their flesh in some way. And this is, I mean, you can see this even in terms of churches where people pick the church that fancies them the most and their interests. And it can be just about entertainment, whatever it might be. But for a lot of people, it's where is my flesh most comforted? And they'll be seeking supposedly, seeking Jesus just for that. And that reveals what they're laboring for. And because Jesus says, don't labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, that means there's more than one kind of food. It's not just physical food, right? There's the spiritual. You're supposed to labor for the food which endures to everlasting life. Now, when you think of laboring, like the jobs that we have to make money, that's the labor that allows us to put food on our tables. But Jesus actually says, don't labor for that food. So this is interesting. It's kind of a paradox because it's like, is he telling me that I'm not to work? What is he trying to say? The point is that you're actually not supposed to see your labor to put food on the table as your labor, as in this is what I do to survive. This is what I need to be able to live, live the kind of life I want to live. He's saying what you define as your work, truly, and what you define as your food, truly, is meant to be labor for the kingdom to be satisfied by his kingdom. That's supposed to be your food. Then you've got, uh, go to verse 35. He continues to teach kind of on this, this strain, verse 35. Same chapter, John 6, says, And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. He's the bread of life. He's saying what you're supposed to feed on is me. That's what he's teaching. 
So if you put that in tandem with 1 Peter 2, verse 2, desire the pure milk of the word. Jesus is the word. The word is Jesus. So hungering for his word and hungering to put it into practice, which is what the work of the kingdom is. That is what satisfies you. That's ultimately what fulfills you. Any questions so far? Any of this? Okay. So that was most of what I wanted to get through. What I'll finish this up with is I will go back to what we started with here. Sure, go for it. One is, um, you know, it says that one of the fruits of the spirits is the spirit is self-control. Um, and so I guess maybe what does that mean in terms of, um, you know, part of what it sounds like you're doing to some people would seem like works. You know, why, why do we need, um, why, why do we need uh, self-denial? Isn't that what Jesus did for us? You know, so um, it. Some people perceive these kinds of things as works. Are we? You know, some people try to do it to like think that then God maybe looks at them more favorably mm -hmm. if they do these things. Mm -hmm. So, I guess where is the balance between you know grace and works? Gotcha. Okay, I think it's a pretty simple answer. So the the fruit of the spirit. Now, if you, take, if you pull that verse out of context, it kind of seems to imply that God's just going to automatically give you all these things without you having to do anything about it. But in that same passage, it says that what we have to do after it lists these fruits of the Spirit, it says to walk in the Spirit. In other words, there is something you have to do. The Spirit produces these things in your life when you walk in the Spirit. So there's a sense in which it requires our action. The matter of the grace of God is simply a question of what is the grace of God for? What is the grace of God supposed to accomplish in your life? What is it supposed to do? Is the grace of God supposed to just give you everything that you need without you having to do anything about it? What is, what is grace for? What does it do? Why, why does God give you his grace? Just throw out some answers. Yeah, that, then what? For forgiveness, right? You fall short, you're forgiven, what else? So you can walk in the Spirit. Exactly. Because if you have grace to fall short and be forgiven, but nothing about your life changes, you're just going to keep falling and being forgiven, and that's going to be a pretty sorry life. Because nothing about your life will change. The grace of God actually is, one of the definitions in the Greek is actually divine ability. It's actually God's ability to do something. When you have God's favor, it empowers you to do what you cannot do on your own. So just like Dolores mentioned back there, the purpose of the grace of God not only is to forgive you when you fall, but to help you to stop falling. So walking in the spirit is only possible by the grace of God. So it's really not your works coming from you, you on your own. It is works that you do being empowered by the grace of God. So the energy that you need to do these things comes from God anyway. So it's really ultimately not you. It's Christ in you. So if you have no works in your life at all, I would question whether you even have God's grace. Because grace accomplishes something in your life. Yes. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So the heart posture, what he was mentioning is the heart posture behind the works that you do matters in terms of why does a person choose to fast? Thank you for bringing that up. Your motive behind something. Yes, is very important. If you do something because this is about being under the law, if you do something because you feel that you are obligated to and that you will not be forgiven unless you do it, 
or God will not approve of you unless you do it. That would be the wrong attitude. In that case, you're actually laboring, working for righteousness. And the Bible says, um, and let's actually turn there a little quick. I think it's just a good verse to consider. It's in Romans chapter, I believe it's Romans 11. Romans excuse me, Romans 10 in verse 2, starting in verse 2 of Romans 10, it says, For I bear them witness, talking about the Israelites, that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. So if you try to establish your own righteousness to get right with God, you aren't given God's righteousness, and you have to have God's righteousness to be saved. God has to make you right with him. You can't establish that righteousness on your own. It comes from God. So as soon as you do something to establish your own righteousness, it's futile. It's empty. So the attitude, the correct attitude, is that I have the grace of God. I have the righteousness of God. It's already part of who I am. So me choosing, for example, to fast is not coming from trying to establish my own righteousness. It's not coming from me trying to get right with God. It's coming from the attitude that I get to do this. I love God for what he's done for me. I want to do this because I want to be more like Jesus. And I know I have all the power that I need to do it because that's what the grace of God is for. And what this accomplishes is greater sanctification in my life, uh, greater Christ-likeness. I'll be able to do more of what Jesus did simply because I love Jesus. That's the point. That's what this is really about. So if you make this a works program, then that's just simply a misunderstanding of God's grace and a misunderstanding of righteousness. So if any of you have it in your mind, my man, this is like a works program. Now, go back and study the grace of God. I would say that. Go back and study the righteousness of God. Get that established first. Because once you have that in place, you're never going to see any work ever again as legalistic. A few years ago, I would have maybe thought it was legalistic, but learning what I've learned, everything that I'm doing now, I, I do simply because I get to. I want to. Amen? Part of the revelation of, because you have now this revelation of the righteousness of God, would you say fasting helps to bring this revelation about? I would say that, well, specifically about revelation, just gen general revelation. Okay. So when it comes to revelation, as in, you know, seeing in the word what you need to see, I don't think a person would be able to fast the right way if they didn't have any revelation. So the Bible says that revelation is something that's granted to you by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said that he opened the disciples, or that Luke says, excuse me, that Jesus opened the disciples' understanding to comprehend the scriptures. And in Ephesians 1, we're told to pray that God enlightens our understanding, opens the eyes of our understanding. So I would just simply say it would be better to pray for God to open the eyes of your understanding and to pray for God to grant you to be able to comprehend the scriptures and then open the scriptures and read them and trust that God will interpret it to you and help you to understand it. Because as a believer, you have the Holy Spirit. And if you have the Holy Spirit, you have what opens your understanding. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3 says, The veil that lies on the scriptures and the reading of the Old Testament is taken away in Christ. So when you have Christ, you have the veil taken away. So you can understand the Bible. You can have this revelation. But you do got to take a step to read it, study it. Um, so that's what I'd say to that. I, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that fasting directly 
improves your revelation. But there's so many spiritual benefits to fasting, period. One of them is that fasting does help you have a clearer mind and it helps helps you to think more strictly. And so in that sense, I would say if you're studying the Bible, it's a good thing to fast while you're doing it because it does help with your thinking. So in that sense, there would be improvements. But I, I wouldn't hang your revelation of Scripture entirely, entirely on whether you're fasting or not. I think that would be um, too far of a conclusion. Okay. Any more comments or questions? Yes. Does fasting help deepen your faith in any type of way? Deepen your faith? Yeah, like, yeah. Improve it? Yeah, improve it. There we go. Strengthen your faith, yeah. I mean, so put it this way. There's a couple scriptures you could look at, but one, so in Matthew 17, when Jesus healed the epileptic boy who was demonized and the disciples couldn't do it, the disciples came to him afterwards. This is like verse, verses 19 through 21 of Matthew 17. Why couldn't we do it, Lord? Why couldn't we heal the boy? Jesus said, it's because of your unbelief. Then he says, this kind cannot come out except by prayer and fasting. And then says, if you have faith as a mustard seed, so on and so forth, he says, you'll be able to speak to this mountain and it'll be removed. So the point is that he connects unbelief and a specific work of his kingdom, which is casting out demons, with prayer and fasting. So that would be one example of Jesus simply telling his disciples, if you want to see more results connected to your faith, then pray and fast. So in that sense, yes, that would be one example. Prayer and fasting does improve your ability to be more successful in works for the kingdom, including casting out demons. Then you've got, we went over this um, recently, about how fasting is an exercise of self-control. It's a discipline of the body, is what 1 Corinthians 9 talks about. And the Bible says that that self-control, it teaches also produces patience. Because when you deny the body of what it wants, that's a form of resisting temptation. And the Bible says that that perfects your faith. So not only does it say it strengthens your faith, it says it actually perfects it. Makes it, it says, James chapter 1 says it brings you to the point where you're perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So I don't know about you guys, but I want to lack nothing. And all of us in this room can say we lack in something. We lack in a lot of things, right? So he says the way you get to a point where your faith has no lack is by patience. Having its perfect work. Patience having its perfect work will make you perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And it says the way you grow in patience is when your faith is tested, when there's hardship, when there's temptation. Uh, we went over this last time that Romans 5 and verse 3 says, glory in tribulation, praise God in tribulation, because tribulation produces perseverance. That's the same Greek word for patience. Hardship, enduring temptation, produces patience. And it's interesting that it says, let patience have its perfect work, because... <laughs> Ironically, it takes a lot of patience to grow patience. <laughs> because in order to have patience, it takes time. That's why it says, hey, let patience run its course. Let it do its thing. Because it takes a while. So it's not like you're going to wake up overnight and have perfect faith that lacks nothing. It's going to take patience to have that because you have to build patience. And it takes patience to build patience. So build the patience to build patience first. <laughs> Basically just means that be patient with the process of building what's needed in your life to be able uh, to see your faith strengthened. So short answer, yes, fasting does contribute to your faith growing. And not only that, the Bible uses stronger words, it contributes to your faith being perfected. So it is a very, very powerful thing. Um, and I think that's probably why Jesus said what was needed to be able to do harder works for his kingdom was prayer and fasting. Because you've got unbelief in your life, which is really a lack of faith, or uh, the Greek word for unbelief simply means disbelief or faithlessness. Um, Jesus said the way that you remedy that when it comes to applying it to works for his kingdom is prayer and fasting. So praying fasting is very, very powerful. Uh, I would say any believer who doesn't fast is lacking in something that is going to give them 
the most consistent growth of their patience, which perfects their faith. So you're missing out on something that's really, really cool, really powerful if you don't fast. Um, so, yeah, great question. I would, I would say that um, absolutely fasting is going to help with your faith, for sure. Anything else? Questions? Comments? Yes. Can you talk about what walking in the Spirit looks like? Yeah, so Jesus said, John 6, verse 63, the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. So you can't leave out walking in the spirit, <clears throat> or excuse me, you can't leave out walking in the word um, out of walking in the spirit because Jesus' words are spirit. Secondly, you have Romans 8 verse 5 which says those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit what are the things of the spirit according to Jesus the word yeah my word is spirit so step one being mindful of scripture is the first part of walking in the spirit Meditate on it. If Jesus' word is spirit, you have to be reading, thinking about, processing, meditating on scripture. And if you're not thinking about scripture, you're not going to be able to do what it says. Basically give up on trying to do the word if you don't read it or don't know it. You do have to be a hearer in order to be a doer, but you can be a hearer without being a doer. That's where it gets dangerous, because if you try to hear the word, but you don't do anything with it, you're still not walking in the spirit. Because walking in the Spirit isn't just hearing the Word. It includes taking action on it as well. That's the walking part. It's an action word. So you've got meditate on the Word and then put action to it. Do something with it. We went over this last time that the more obedient you are to the Word, the more strengthened you are going to be in not only your faith itself, but also in that lifestyle of walking in the Spirit. We also went over last time that the Bible says faith without works is dead. Faith that's alive would be faith that does have works. And we talked about how a living plant grows, a dead plant does not grow. So any part of your faith in the word that does not have action is dead. So if you want to grow in an area, you have to do something about it that keeps the seed, keeps the plant alive. So if you want to grow in an area, do the word. If there's no action in an area, it's, it's, you're just not growing. That's why it actually says in James 1 that if you're a hearer but not a doer, you're deceiving yourself. You're deceiving yourself because you think you're all spiritual because you read the Bible a lot, but you have no action. Therefore, your faith is dead. So you're deceiving yourself, tricking yourself into thinking you're doing something good when you're really not if there's no action involved. And so you just got to think about to just wrap this up, that walking in the Spirit means setting your mind on the Word, number one, and number two, doing it. And that is walking in the Spirit.